Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Last August, as Gail and I were flying on a dreary, rainy, stormy night to Fairbanks, Alaska, I was working on sermon titles for this year. And as I read this passage again and again with the plane sort of bouncing around, I kept remembering the class I had had in Paul's letter to the Galatians back when I was in seminary. And I recall that this chapter... Uh, centers around a Greek word called pedagogos, pedagogos. We get pedagogue from it in English. But over the centuries, since the writing of Paul's letter, the word has changed in English. Today it usually means teacher or educator or tutor. But the scholars who translated your New Revised Standard Version are closer to what the word meant originally when they used the word disciplinarian. Disciplinarian. A pedagogos in the Greco-Roman world uh, was a term used usually within wealthy families who had slaves and assigned a slave to look after male children. From the time a little boy was able to go out of the home away from his parents, he was watched over by a pedagogos who was supposed to be sure that he got to school safely, got home safely, uh, was not harmed by anyone, and that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. Disciplinarian. Uh, Paul says to the churches of Galatia, uh, the Torah was disciplinarian from the time of Moses until the time of Jesus. For 2,000 years, it was that which kept you moving the way you should have been moving. As I read the text over and over, I thought about one of Gail's favorite television programs called Super Nanny. Uh, she'd ask me, watch this with me sometime. Watch Super Nanny with me sometime. And so I've watched it a couple of times. Um, this British nanny goes into a home where she's invited and always finds children who have taken over the house. Uh, sometimes they're three years old, five years old, and they've taken over the house. They are screaming, ranting, raving, hitting, uh, throwing things. It's unbelievable what she encounters in these homes. And she's trying to bring some kind of sanity to this family to help the parents regain control of their own homes. A key, of course, is consistency. Be consistent. She also makes much use of a chair in a corner where one has to have time out. And that time out period is always based on the age of the child. One minute per year age. So a three-year-old, just three minutes in the chair. A five-year-old, five minutes. Now, when a child needs to have time out and be in the chair, the disciplinarian is supposed to tell the child very clearly why this is happening. You hit your sister. You threw something at your brother. You were playing with something you should not have been playing with and you broke it. 
you must sit now three minutes. A three-year-old may not know what three minutes represents, so you will sit here three minutes until I tell you time's up. After that point, if the child gets out of the chair too soon, you say nothing. But you're bigger, so you pick up the child and put them back in the chair. And every time they get up, you pick them up, say nothing, put them back in the chair. Super Nanny has had some mothers and daddies who've let their children get so far out of control that they have to put that child back in the chair 68 times, 73 times, 79 times before the child finally gets the point. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do this three minutes, this five minutes, whatever it is. I'm going to have to do this. And when the child finally gets the point, no more talking, you see, after the first explanation, no more talking, just back in the chair, back in the chair, back in the chair. And then when the time is done, a hug. Oh, you did that really well. I hope you don't have to do this again. It's amazing what happened. Well, Paul sees the Torah for these new Gentile Christians as sort of a super nanny. A uh, disciplinarian, one who points us in the right direction. See, this is number one. Uh, a Mrs. Gallagher has written a new book called Wrapped. Now, this is not W-R-A-P-P-E-D as one would do for a present. It's not even R-A-P-P-E-D as one might do in a certain musical uh, genre. But in fact, this is the word R-A-P-T. I usually think of R-A-P-T as, a, as an adjective, and we often use it with the word attention. And that's exactly the way Meredith Gallagher's using the word. In fact, she hones in on several major studies that have been done the last few years showing how unreliable eyewitnesses are. Judges and attorneys are discovering that eyewitnesses aren't nearly as accurate as we thought for so long. Uh, they make a lot of mistakes. Uh, one experiment conducted by a major university uh, had a group of willing subjects who were presented a problem. A basketball court filled with players, half of whom were wearing black jerseys and half of whom were wearing white. Okay. Uh, black jerseys, white jerseys, and all kinds of basketballs were suddenly thrown into the room. And these people were to pick up the basketballs and throw them from one to the other to the other. But what the subject was supposed to do was count only the times that a person with a black jersey handled one of the balls. Now, they're throwing them every which way. How many times did a person with a black jersey handle the ball? Or, they might be given the problem, how many times did a person with a white jersey handle the ball? Black and white wasn't important. What they discovered was that the people who were really trying to get this right were paying so much attention to the people in the black jerseys or white, whichever the problem might have presented to them, that they did not see a person dressed in a gorilla outfit go right through the middle of the gym. Another problem, they had a subject, and they did this with dozens of people, one at a time. Would you be willing to give instructions to a construction worker who's trying to get to a certain location in your community? Well, of course. In this instance, the person was approached by a person dressed like a construction worker who asked for the 
directions for a certain location, and the person began to give instructions, when suddenly two men carrying an eight-by-four-foot sheet of plywood went right between the two of them. And what happened was the person to whom this one had been speaking followed the plywood out, and another person had come in with the plywood, and the person was so intent, more than 50% of them, in giving instructions, they didn't realize they'd changed people. They were now talking to a different person. Now, the point of the book is, in one sentence, life is really the sum of the things on which we focus. Wrapped attention. Wrapped attention. How successfully do we focus? Paul says the Torah is a great place to begin. But you Gentile Christians don't have to be circumcised for religious purposes and you don't have to eat kosher. Number two. He then says you have come to faith in the grace of God because you've come to know Jesus Christ. Just after this new year began, John Updike died after a long battle with cancer. And Updike was so admired and respected by so many different writers that almost every time I've picked up a publication of any kind since then, somebody's writing a tribute to John Updike. Uh, this past week, uh, James Watts here in the Tulsa World was writing a book review of the last things John Updike wrote just before he died. Now, a couple more of his books are coming out, but these are things his wife has gathered up and so on, and they're going to be published. These were the last things that he wrote, and he knew he was dying. I had the privilege of meeting John Updike when he was named Author of the Year at the Peggy Helmrich Library dinner here some years ago. Uh, Gail and I go to that every year. We've met a lot of interesting people. Sometimes we don't get to meet the person uh, who is the honoree, but at other times we have been fortunate enough to get to meet some of these outstanding writers. A few times I've been asked to say the prayer before the meal, and that really puts us close to the speaker. It was one of those years that John Updike was author of the year. And when the program was over and he was it, he leaned over to me and said, what a beautiful prayer. Now, not very many people mention your prayer. You know, I pray a lot. I pray in public a lot. And not many people go to the trouble and say, that, that was really nice. That was meaningful. That was helpful. John Updike did. Now, I knew when I wrote it, John Updike was going to hear it. And what a craftsman of words he was. So I was nervous about it when I put it together. But not only did he say, that was a beautiful prayer. Thank you very much. He said, I grew up a Methodist myself. Now, I usually don't like that kind of statement. You know, people say to me, well, I was a Methodist. I was a Methodist. And I always say, well, what happened to you? And so I asked Mr. Updike, what happened to you? And he smiled and said, I married an Episcopalian. And we live in a small town in New England, he said. And she really loved her church. And I thought the Wesleys would forgive me if I joined the Anglicans. But he went on to say that he and his wife went to church every week. They went to worship every week. 
So I think you would not be surprised at one of the poems he wrote not long before he died. The timbrel creed of praise gives spirit to the daily. Blood tinges lips. The tongue reposes in papyrus pleas, P-L-E-A-S. He's thinking about Psalm 23 now when he goes on saying, surely. Magnificent word that. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. My life. Forever, he wrote. And scholars say that even that word follow is not the most accurate translation. The Hebrew word is more of chase or pursue. Goodness and mercy do not just follow along. Goodness and mercy are chasing you, pursuing you. Turn around and embrace goodness and mercy. John Updike had done that. So have you and I. Number three. Paul then speaks to baptism. You who've been baptized and clothed, he said, in Christ. We know from early writings of Christian churches that baptism was symbolized more dramatically sometimes in the early church than today. That people actually took off the outer garment, stripped down to underwear. It was a little more covering than some of the underwear today. But they stripped down to the underwear and then put on a white, beautiful white gown after baptism, symbolizing this change. I was reading just recently an interview with Aaron Neville. You know that name? Well, if you've ever seen him and heard him, you'll remember Aaron Neville. He is a black musician out of New Orleans. He usually wears sleeveless shirts and he has biceps that look like a stevedore because that's what he's been. Years and years working on the docks in New Orleans, Louisiana. He has a big black mole right over his right eye. Tattoos, jewelry. But he sings with a high falsetto voice. This huge hulk of a man with his high falsetto voice. In this interview, he was being asked very personal questions about his own life. Grew up in New Orleans, three brothers. His father was a Methodist. Loved to sing, loved music, loved the Wesleyan heritage. His mother was a Roman Catholic. She wanted her four little boys to get to go to Roman Catholic schools. This was still segregated New Orleans when they were growing up. And little black boys could go to the Catholic schools. And she made that happen. And Aaron looks back on that experience and says, the nuns were wonderful. They were wonderful. They taught us about the love of God. They taught us about what God had done in Christ. They taught us about forgiveness. And we were baptized and confirmed. But he and his brothers had become singers. They were cute little boys and had good voices. And so they got to sing in the nightclubs along uh, Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And by the time Aaron was eighth grade and got to meet some of the traveling musicians that came in and out of New Orleans, all of whom seemed to be doing alcohol and drugs, he started with marijuana. And within a year, he said he was doing heroin and everything came crashing down. He fought that drug battle for years. And then he said, 
I knew in the deepest parts of my soul I needed to get back to what the nuns had taught me. Get back to God. Get back to prayer. And he checked himself into a rehab center. That was 25 years ago. He's been clean and sober for 25 years. But here's what I want you to hear, he said. But by the time I got out of that center, I knew I had to make some changes. Had to get me a whole set of new friends. My old friends were not good for me. I couldn't stand around after I got through singing at one of these nightclubs and visit with all these traveling musicians because many of them were up to no good. I needed to go home to my wife and kids. And on Sunday, I needed to be in church. I prayed the rosary, he said, and it became so important to me that where many have a rosary around their necks, I wear mine around my wrist. And I looked at a picture of him. There it is. Smaller beads around his wrist. Just a reminder. Keep praying. Keep praying. Seek the help of God. Just for today. Just for today. Help me. Help me. It's worked 25 years. But you see what he describes is you put off your old clothes and you put on the new clothes of this life in Christ. Number four. Last Sunday night, Hallmark Hall of Fame had another great movie. Unlike what they usually do. I read one previewer that said, you know, Hallmark Hall of Fame uses a girl and a boy. And 90 minutes later, you know, everything's going to end well. This one was about the Holocaust. It was about a Roman Catholic Christian, a young woman named Irena Sindler. Gail and I have been to Poland. I can tell you that the best preserved of the Holocaust sites are in Poland. Majdanek, we've been to. Auschwitz, we've been to. Birkenau, we've been to. Um, Irena Sindler was a Christian. There were many Polish people who betrayed Jewish neighbors, uh, who took money from them as long as the Jewish neighbors were willing to pay and had money to pay. And when the Jews ran out of money, they betrayed them to the Nazis. Eventually, a half million Jews had been forced into the ghetto in the heart of Warsaw. Huge walls built around them. They were not allowed inside or out. And, of course, they got sick and they, they died of malnutrition and disease and so on. And eventually then came the final solution. Put them on the trains and send them to the camps where they would be gassed and burned. Irina, Irina heard these stories. They are not being taken to work camps. They're being taken to camps where they're gassed and where they die and they're burned up. And so she started going into the ghetto and begging Jewish mamas and daddies to let her take their children. This is not going to end well, she said. Let me help you smuggle your child out of the ghetto. And she found other Christian families outside who were willing to take a child. A family that might have three or four of their own took in a little Jewish child. And if the Nazis came, said, this is my child. I have four. I have five. Whatever it is. Irina had to convince Jewish families to let her take their children. She wrote in code on a strip of paper where every child had been placed, put them in a jar, buried the code and the jar so that when this horrible war was over, these families, if there were any survivors at all from the family, they could go and find that child and reclaim it. You know how many children she smuggled out of the ghetto and saved? Twenty-five hundred. 
because Arena had been to Mass and she heard the priest say, since Christ has come, it's not my family against all the others. It's not my tribe against all the others. It's not my nation against all the others. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is not male and female. We are one in Christ. Amen.